college himself, uh, but we do that in thanksgiving. We do that as a response to what God has done for us. And I certainly hope you can sing uh, those hymns this morning with a realization and a recognition uh, that Jesus Christ is certainly uh, your Savior. Uh, The book of Jude this morning, Jude 4 will be our text this morning, Jude the fourth verse. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll be emphasizing verse 4 as we uh, go verse by verse with this very brief uh, epistle uh, written by Jude. Jude verse 1, Jude the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, as we looked at verse 3, we learned about contending earnestly for the faith. We referred to it as the common faith or the common salvation. And we learned that to contend means to hold on to faithfully, to guard, to defend, and anything, and to hold tightly to anything that pertains to our faith. So as we look at verse number four this morning, we've got to realize that we're told to contend for the faith, but we're also told that there is danger when we contend for this faith. Uh, We should not get the impression that contending for the common faith or the common salvation is going to be easy. Verse number four is in direct context to what Jude says in verse three, that we're going to contend for the faith, and almost on cue, verse four says, for there are. In other words, there's a reason that you need to diligently contend because you have an enemy within the church. Those enemies within the church we're going to learn about this morning, we're told that they crept in unawares. Now, the one thing we need to keep in mind, we're not told when they crept in. We're not told how long they've been there. But at some point in time, there were people, certain men, who got in to the churches and they were undetected. Uh, Nobody knew who they were or what they were really there for. Now, they have an intention, and we're going to talk about that this morning, but they came in with an intent. In other words, they did not come in peace. They did not come as people to say, listen, we've come to make this congregation better, but rather they've come under the guise of making it better, only seeking to pervert it and corrupt it, to compromise it, to destroy the true gospel of redeeming grace that's being preached and proclaimed there. So we're talking about an enemy. Now, the word enemy is often thrown around very loosely in our society today. Uh, Many people will say, I have enemies. I have people that um, I just don't get along with. I would contend with you today to be careful of the word, using the word enemy with someone you just don't get along with. 
Uh, enemy is a very strong word. It's, it's, it's right up there with calling somebody a fool. You better be very careful before you call somebody a fool uh, because the ramifications of what you're saying are more than just somebody uninformed. Uh, biblically speaking, a fool is, is declared as, as someone who is antagonistic and is very much against the things of God. So we've got to be careful about those things. Just like using the word enemy. When we use, think about the word enemy, the Bible here does not use the word enemy in our text. However, when you read what their mission is, their mission is to turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. That alone constitutes an enemy towards the things of God. But it goes on further and says, and denying the only Lord God, and notice the word and, our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no verse in the Bible that describes a greater enemy to the church than Jude 4. Jude 4 is a perfect description of what an enemy to the church looks like. Now remember, Jude was not writing to one congregation. He was writing to, con to, to believers in general. That means this is a possibility at any local congregation. It was a possibility at any place where churches were gathered together. The most frightening part about this is that the Bible says that they crept in, which means they're already there. So the most dangerous or most treacherous enemy is the one that is doing it subtly. It's the one who crept in unsuspected, and almost every single time they came in under a false profession. We're very careful about professions of faith. We should be very careful about professions of faith. The easiest thing in the world to say is, I am saved. It's an easy phrase, I am saved. And if that's all our profession of faith is based on, is I am saved, uh, we better be careful about what we are saying and what we're accepting. Because anyone can make a profession of faith. Uh, there is uh, no guideline as to uh, what you should say or how you should say it, although we understand here that a profession of faith should include something, especially with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ, shouldn't it? A person can claim to be saved and no, not claim to know Christ. I want you to hold your place here for a moment. Remember, a few weeks ago in our introduction, we looked over at 2 Peter chapter uh, 2. I want you to turn over there because 2 Peter 2 reads much like what this says in verse number 4 of Jude. 2 Peter 2, verse number 1, as Peter is warning in his epistle, notice some of the warnings are very, very similar. In verse 1 of 2 Peter 2, the Bible says, but there were false prophets also among the people. Notice, false prophets among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. 
For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Now, I took us to that text because I want, to, want you to see that this, again, remember we looked in the introduction that much of what Jude writes in his epistle is almost verbatim from what we see in 2 Peter. But what we see in both of these texts is we see that there is a written warning being given to those who would be labeled as apostates. We learned in the first week about what an apostate is. An apostate is not someone who was truly saved at one time and suddenly turned away from the faith. An apostate is one who was never in the faith at all. They were never part of the family of God. They were never, they were never one of God's children. So these certain men that creep in in Jude 4 are not people who were once saved or are saved they are people who came in secretly with the full intent of changing God's grace. Changing God's grace from something pure and right to something vile and corrupt. The way you primarily corrupt and pervert the grace of God is what you do with Jesus Christ. If you want to corrupt the grace of God, deny Christ. Any denial of Christ corrupts the grace of God in any way, shape, or form. So if I, in some form today, deny the Christ of the Bible, I am, in effect, I am turning the grace of God into something impure or lascivious. And we'll talk about that word in a few moments. So Jude says these men, though, and this is the, the part that often makes people stumble, these people were before of old, notice the word, ordained to this condemnation. They were ordained to it. Not just foreknowledge that it would happen, but there is within this phrase a predestination to it. In other words, this is something that is not out of the realm of God's work. Now immediately we say, why in the world would God allow or plan for these certain men to creep in to a church. I want you to understand something. There's a lot of things about God we don't fully understand. 
We don't understand this morning why God allows sin. He does not the author of sin, but why does God allow some allow sin to happen in order that his purposes might be completed? Some would say if God is so sovereign and God is so holy, if God is this, then why does God allow any sin at all? Because even sin, God takes that and he uses it to accomplish his purposes and his kingdom and his glory. Even in the midst of sinful man. But this is peculiar because you have these apostates who creep in with an intent. So these ideas this morning, these things that we're looking at, we're understanding that these are things that are not meant to be taken lightly. So let's first of all consider these apostates. Uh, These apostates crept in with a deliberate intention to deceive, all right? So number one, these apostates crept in with a deliberate intention to deceive. This expression tells us that they crept in unawares means this is not somebody who came in who makes a mistake. Now, if you're in the faith long enough, we will say things amongst each other that are not always doctrinally perfectly sound, right? Sometimes our conversations, we say things because it's a Christian cliche we've heard all of our life, and somehow it's gotten in that we think that's what the Bible actually says. It doesn't. Now, that's a mistake. That's not me telling you something intentionally to try to undermine or to corrupt or to pervert. We make mistakes. A preacher This preacher has stood behind this pulpit and has misspoken before with no intent to deceive you. It's, I said it wrong, I expressed it wrong, and sometimes flat out maybe I was wrong, but there was not an intent to deceive you. All right? So there's a big difference there. Anybody who preaches is going to make a mistake and they're going to say something wrong. You don't scream heretic at the man because he makes a mistake. It's pattern of life. If he repeats it and keeps saying it over and over again, then you know it's not a mistake. It's an intent. These men came in with an intent, not just simply making mistakes. They are like the false brethren that are mentioned throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, over in the book of Galatians, Paul writes a warning to that church to be on the lookout for individuals who are coming in in this manner. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse number 1. Galatians 2, verse number 1. You notice uh, Paul is giving a little bit of background here. He says, Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Now notice what Paul says here, very important. To whom? 
That's the false brethren who came in unaware. We gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. In other words, we gave them no place to stand. We didn't even give them an hour. You see, there's always been those who intend to come in to rob, to steal, to bring into bondage. But those that come in to do that do not come in with an announcement. They don't come in and say, we are here to completely destroy this congregation of people. They come in subtly. Ephesians 4 verse 14 says this, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So these men that Jude talks about that crept in unawares are lying in wait. I would dare say this morning that if they were with us today, you would not recognize them. They would not have a mark on their forehead. They would not have a stripe on their back that says, watch out for this one. That's how dangerous this is. As a matter of fact, they might even be the person that when you're in a time of need, they might be the person right there for you because they're not going to be overt about what they're doing. That's how false doctrine, false teaching gets into a church. It does not usually start in the teaching ministry of a church, it starts by somebody sliding in subtly, coming in as that which has a profession of faith and seemingly can be trusted. So what does that mean for us? Well, if Jude was telling these churches at that time, and remember, we've studied this over the last month already, that when these false doctrines were beginning, uh, this was the, really the beginning. The churches were just being established. They had not been in existence very long. And this is the beginning of those false doctrines. And you remember, the primary doctrine at the day and age was Gnosticism, which Gnosticism taught that there really was no sin, that man really could do anything he wanted to do, and that, honestly, God could never be in the flesh. Now, that's going to be important in just a moment because that's what the denial of Jesus Christ is. So they come in in what we might refer to as in camouflage. They may be someone who originally came in from the outside, but they remain hidden with a determination to undermine the very faith of the people they sit with. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that. It's almost impossible for us to think that that could happen to us. And it's not to say it's happening right now. But it happened, and it will continue to happen. Remember, notice how Jude, Jude writes. He says, there are certain men. He doesn't say they're coming. He said, they're already there. They're, certain men have already got in. They're already inside of these churches. So we understand here that these Gnostics who believed it was all right to live a life that is not really holy, not really given to the things of God, 
Uh, they might say things like this. God wants us to have a little bit of fun. God wants us to enjoy life a little bit. God, God's not going to be mad at us if we commit just a few little sins here or there. That's kind of the idea behind what lasciviousness is. You turn the grace of God. God saved me by his sovereign grace. And because he saved me, I can do whatever I want to do. That's partly what it is to turn the grace of God into something corrupt. Now, that's just where it starts. So, hey, folks, God, God doesn't really expect us to live holy. God doesn't, God's not a restricting God. How often have you heard that in the modern church? God is not a restrictive God, really. Scripturally speaking, he's very restrictive. Now, that's not a popular God. That's not a God that's going to fill churches. He's not. But God wouldn't want you to. God doesn't want to, pardon the expression, God doesn't want to rain on your parade. He's just come to give you happiness. Jesus Christ came to give you happiness. No, he didn't. That's not why. So we have this, that's how it begins. Let's talk about the grace of God and let's turn it into something a little bit less than what it really is. These are subtle attempts to try to get the elect of God to be ensnared into disobedience. Listen, if you can get a church who understands the grace of God and get them enslaved into a, a web of disobedience, you will destroy that local congregation. If you can get them to abuse the grace of God, if you can get them to turn it into something it wasn't, you'll destroy that church and you'll bring it down. That's the whole idea here. We're not going to come in and set a bomb off. We're just going to come in and subtly start questioning, is that really what the grace of God is? Paul even dealt with that in Romans. The grace of God is not a license to sin. It's, it's, it's the very basics of grace. And yet, if we're not careful, that subtlety gets in and turns it into something that it's not. So these apostates, they crept in with deliberate intention to deceive. Number two, the apostates' condemnation was before of old declared. In other words, this is not a shock. This is not a surprise. Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Notice the phrase ordained to this condemnation. That ordained of old is really the same phrase as we see in Hebrews 1.1 where it says in times past. In other words, when were they condemned? They were condemned from the very beginning. And what we just read in 2 Peter chapter number 2, this passage and the one in Jude are referring to Old Testament scriptures that reveal that there are examples of condemnation that happened to Old Testament nations and people that you're going to see on display in this New Testament era. They're historical examples. We'll go over the next few weeks, but he gives examples here of uh, in verse number five, six, and seven of examples of people and situations who were ordained to condemnation. To be ordained to condemnation, that means there is a judgment that is going to be received at the hand of God. 
What's very powerful about this is in verse 4, the same condemnation that Sodom and Gomorrah got, the same condemnation that Egypt got, the same condemnation that those wicked angels got, is the same condemnation that these evil men who crept in unaware were going to receive. In other words, this is not a light matter, these men who creep in unaware trying to destroy God's church. Now, Again, here we have the church supposed to be contending for the faith. Here we have a declaration that God is going to ordain that this happens. Folks, we can say the same thing about the persecuted church today. If God is so good and God is so holy, then why did God allow Christians to suffer and be persecuted and even put to death? That is not happening outside of the boundaries of God's sovereignty. And we can sit and argue today all day long about why God does what he does and why God allows what he allows. And I will tell you, you will never find the purpose in your human reasoning. But you are going to find that every bad thing that happens in this world, every sinful act, God, it does not go unnoticed. And God does not just simply say, I'm not going to use that for my glory and my honor and my praise. Through sin, God still accomplishes his purpose. It's an amazing thing. You look at scriptures that the more persecuted the church is in, in the scripture, the stronger the church becomes. The more false teachers get into a church and that church rises up and pushes them to the curb, the stronger that church becomes. So maybe, just maybe, God allows these people who are already ordained to condemnation to come in so that his glory might be shown. Just like God raising up Pharaoh for one purpose and one purpose only to bring him down. God gave Pharaoh life to bring him down to show his power and his purposes and his glory. So here you have these apostates coming in who are promised condemnation. And in God's providence, not by chance, these wicked men creep into the church. God's already said, I condemn it. They're going to experience my wrath, but they were already predestined by God to be condemned and damned. Again, ask me to fully explain that to you today in God's perfect sovereignty, and I will fail to do that. But that's what it's telling us. They were before of old ordained. They were set apart for this purpose. Who are they? We don't know. We do know the Bible talks about in the New Testament as well. Jesus teaches about the wheat and the tares. The tares are so close in resemblance to the wheat that you can't tell the difference just by looking at them. And remember the disciples even at one time asked Jesus, can, can you let us go out and tear, literally tear the tares out? And in a paraphrase, he says, you wouldn't be able to do it you won't be able to tell the difference. So we sit here today and we think, oh, I would see this certain man that creeps in unawares. I'm going to identify him just by looking at him. You're not going to identify him just by seeing him. But you'll begin to see in action. You'll begin to see in doctrine. You'll begin to see in the words. You'll begin to understand that this, this, this individual or these individuals that come in, they will declare themselves by what they say and what they do. So thirdly, let's deal with this word 
ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Number three, the apostate corrupts the grace of God by denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word lasciviousness is a word you probably have never heard in modern day English. You've never heard somebody in the street say, don't be lascivious. But in our world today, that would describe something, an action, an activity that is shameless and shocking to even public decency. That's the strongest way to describe this. So think about the most shocking public display you could think of and try to compare it. That's the idea. Lasciviousness, look at it again, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. The most horrible, shocking public display of something crude that could be thought of. In other words, they're not just twisting it just a little bit. Their desire is to completely spin grace on its head and turn it into a shocking display that's not even publicly decent. Now you think about this this morning, folks. This is happening all around us. And I'm not talking on the streets. I'm talking in the church. Where the grace of God has been turned upside down into something that used to be shocking even to the outside world, now the church says it's okay. It's happening all around us. It's in opposition to the will of God. What, is, what did Paul teach us in Romans 12.1? Paul begged the church at Rome that consisted of Jews and Gentiles. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And he gave this admonition. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, verse 3, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. They changed something that was a beautiful picture of who God is and turned it into something that would even be repulsive to the general public. Can you imagine turning the grace of God into something repulsive? Yet here you have what's happening here. This is apostasy in a perfect, in a perfect demonstration here. If you want to know an apostate, that's what an apostate is. They're taking something that is wholesome, something that is pure, something that is right, and they're corrupting it, they're perverting it. That's why this warning is so strong. So here's where it really gets down to what's happening. Now, the lasciviousness and the, hey, it's all right, don't worry about sin, God doesn't hold us to a high standard, the real seriousness comes in with the word deny. Here it is right there. And denying the only Lord God. This is really where the whole idea of these men that creep in unawares, this is where it really all finds its foundation. It attempts to rob the believer of his faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what's at the heart of this. To deny 
God as the only Lord, to deny Christ as our only master. Now, this apostasy does not seem at first to be that dangerous, except to the people who truly understand what it is to be saved by Christ and through Christ alone. But if you can just plant just the smallest seed of doubt, is Christ really all that we need? You plant that seed and you water it enough, you could have a whole church of people saying, I wonder if really Christ alone is really sufficient. There are churches today that don't even speak about Christ. They have four services a week and they never mention his name. They talk about God all day, but they do not speak about Christ. They don't talk about his blood. They don't talk about a need for forgiveness. They talk about all that they're doing to help the general public, which nothing wrong with that, but they don't talk about Christ. Folks, denying Christ is not just simply saying, I don't believe in him. It's really just kind of distancing yourself away from him. Pushing yourself away where, you know, he's a part of what we do, but he's not the main thing. You see, the apostate denies the most important foundation of even Christianity. And again, we use the word Christianity very, very loosely because we know today to call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you believe in Jesus Christ. Any trip to the local bookstore will show you that all things labeled Christian are not Christian. Just because it's in the Christian book section doesn't make it Christian. So what is it? Here it's being identified. Notice specifically it says denying the only Lord God. And you'll notice between the phrase only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ is the word and. This is important. This phrase that Jesus is our only master. This is an acknowledgement of our relationship to him, our understanding of who he is. Jesus here is being identified as Lord. The very fact that the apostate denies is that God has ruling power or that Christ has power. Listen, the very reason that we respect and we submit to the rule of God is through Jesus Christ. It is what makes salvation of the soul. It's the understanding that it is through the the result of God's grace that Christ has been sent and it's through him that our salvation is found. The true believer is the man who regards God and regards Jesus Christ as his absolute Lord. And I know there's this huge debate going on in churches about do we believe in uh, in salvation and then lordship salvation, all of this stuff. Would you just cut all that out and get to the bottom of what this is? My faith is in Jesus Christ alone. And if my faith is in Jesus Christ alone, there's a natural response and I'm going to make him the only Lord of my life. Now, how you want to define that, you can get into arguments about that all you want. But what I'm telling you is, is that for the true believer who has made Christ their only way, he is going to be the Lord of their life. He's the Lord of our relationship. We're going to submit to his instructions. You know, Jesus Christ can be the Lord, but not your Lord. Again, you can walk around saying all you want. I'm saved because I prayed one day. 
Ask if Jesus is the Lord of your life and you say something like, I don't, I don't believe in that lordship salvation. That's not what I ask you. Folks, that's, what, that's the argument that's happening now. We have denominations being split right down the middle. Whether or not you believe repentance is part of it and lordship salvation is part of it. Where do you think this is coming from? If you begin asking the question, why does the Lord need to be the Lord of my life? There's something wrong with your faith. The reality of what's happening here is that they are denying all of these things. The Bible clearly teaches that we who are in Christ are clearly to be a servant of him. We obey him. That's part of the commandments of Scripture. The person who submits himself and makes the appetites of the flesh and the deceptions of the devil the Lord of his life, that's his Lord. Whoever you submit your life to, that's your Lord. So apostasy of life or an apostate is the result of a, an apostasy of doctrine. In other words, an apostate is one who denies the doctrines that are so clearly believed and taught by the Scriptures. You and I today, we believe in doctrine. We know that those who come to this church, we understand doctrine is, a, is the vital, vitally important in the life of this church. The doctrine we believe is found in the grace of God. It's found in Christ alone. It's found in faith alone, to the glory of God alone. It's found in those five souls we talk often about. But here you have this idea that a person can recognize doctrine and still miss Christ. That's why I said, folks, you can be sound in your doctrine and still miss the Lord Jesus Christ. You can know all the big terms and still fully miss. Because having a right doctrine, I want you to understand this, having the right doctrine doesn't guarantee you live a right life. It just doesn't. Doctrine is no good if it doesn't reflect and apply to our life. It's once we recognize the fact that my doctrine leads me to one choice and one choice only, it is that I'm to recognize and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ as my Lord. And if I do that, I'm going to live a different life. The results are going to be visible. Folks, there are people, you can have a salvation conversation about the gospel with them. You can give them all of the right words, all of the right verses. They will even recognize the facts of the gospel, but they will refuse to take hold on the Savior of the gospel. In other words, you can walk them down the proverbial Romans road. And they'll say the right thing. But in their heart of hearts, they are not laying hold on Christ. That's why I said, be very careful about who you declare to be a brother or sister in Christ. Just because they say they are doesn't make it so. Just because even if a preacher comes in and says he's such and such, it ought to be found in his model and manner of life, not just by what he said. That's why I've mentioned to you, there's really no more dangerous time in lives of a church when there's nobody shepherding. Because you get desperate and you say, we need somebody. And that somebody comes right to the front door and says, 
Wow, I walked right in here. I'm in. I'm standing, and now I have a congregation of people without a shepherd who I can simply begin to teach these subtle little things, move them away from the truths of Scripture, turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, and eventually my intention is to move them totally away from Jesus Christ. And before you know it, you have a church that's completely deserted the faith. The prayer is, is that it never goes that far because the people in the church recognize this isn't right. Christ is the only absolute Lord. This fact has to be admitted to. It must be proclaimed. There's a lot of people that recognize Christ as Lord with their lips, but do not recognize Christ as Lord with their life. With the lips is easy. Even from a small child, we learn how to say the things that will please our parents, even though we know it's not what we really mean. Fourthly, the apostate denies the claims of the divine nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two phrases, denying our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all in the wording. The second fact that the apostate denies is that Jesus was the promised Christ of the Old Testament. Now today, we might say, well, that's, isn't that really the problem with the Jews today? They deny that Christ is the Messiah. Yes, that's part of it. But you realize today that the divinity of Christ as promised in the Old Testament, it's happening even in what's called churches today, where people say Jesus, Jesus Christ was a good man. He gives us a good example, but he's not, he's not divinity. He's not God. That's why that's not a debatable issue that you can say, okay, I believe Jesus is God and you don't. We can agree to disagree. No, you can't. You can't even have fellowship in that regard. Now, we could, we could, we could have a lot of different opinions about different things, but you can't have a different opinion about the divinity of Christ. There would never be a person knowingly put in front of this church who did not believe in the deity of Christ allowed to teach a single minute of anything that this church has. That's how serious it is. Because that deity is the promise that the Old Testament said that this Messiah would come and here's who he would be. But remember what the Gnostics believed. One of their main beliefs was that God himself could never put on sinful flesh. Yet that's exactly what Christ did in the incarnation. He took on a robe of human flesh, never ceasing to be God. Man is so sinful, this could never possibly happen. They said Jesus was not the Christ. But folks, denying the divinity of Jesus was not just limited to the Gnostics. Today, that is the prime consideration. It's the greatest quarrel, the argument that's going on in our churches today is about the deity of Christ. One of the most unpopular things you can do today is to announce unbelief to somebody. To denounce someone, we're being called dividers. If you stand up today and proclaim that all who deny Jesus Christ's deity cannot be a child of God or cannot be in the faith, you're the one that's going to be labeled as being wrong. 
Go out on social media and do it. See what your response is. See what happens. You're divisive. Jesus himself declared that he, he is, he is belief. He is the center of it. Jesus Christ is the confession of faith that is made by all true believers, and he will also be the very mark of division. Folks, listen, Jesus Christ and his Messiahship, Jesus Christ and his deity, uh, we cannot compromise on that. We can't say, listen, to try to get more people interested, let's just compromise in this area. We cannot do that. Jesus is, was sent. Jesus is more than just simply a man. He was God in the flesh. The apostate wants more than anything for them to deny that. The next week, we'll look at these three examples in verses 5, 6, and 7. These are verses that were set forth as an example of this ordaining to condemnation. And it's important that we'll see this next week. So uh, if you want to read ahead, study those verses for yourself and consider, okay, what's, what's, what's the point here? What's happening? And I think we'll see exactly uh, what, what the Lord has for us there. All right, well, let's go ahead and we'll, be, we'll close in prayer. Let's go ahead and stand if you would. And as we think about these things, uh, again, these are, these are messages that are difficult to deliver, but they're, they're vitally important. Um, because we need to understand that we are not living immune to these situations. Father, we thank you today for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you for the declaration of the truth this morning. And Lord, we pray today that, uh, that th there are those that uh, we come in contact with maybe daily, uh, Lord, who, who are not uh, apostates seeking to deceive. They're not seeking to destroy. Uh, they, they truly are outside of the body of Christ. And Lord, I pray that our testimony and our witness would be as you've laid it out, that we would proclaim a Jesus Christ of the scriptures, that we would stand firm on what we believe, not in a hateful manner, but in a way that demonstrates the love and the grace that has been shown to us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as a, as a body of believers here to be on guard, to be aware. Lord, to never get so comfortable to think that we're immune or above anything like this happening. Lord, I pray that you continue to unify us around these great doctrines, that you would unify us around the deity of Jesus Christ and who he is. And Lord, that he truly is the Lord of our lives. Father, but I also know you've called us to be on guard and to be aware. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would do our part uh, to be aware of what's going on around us. Father, thank you for this time we've had this morning. Lord, bless this time of fellowship. Uh, may it be an encouragement to each other. May it be edifying. And uh, Father, may Christ truly be glorified in it all. And it's in Christ's name I pray and for his sake, amen. All right.